1: Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to have someone come back to the podcast for the second time the author of Prototype Politics Technology Intensive Campaigning and the Data of Democracy. Our author is Daniel Christ, who has been here before. Dan, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back.
1: Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you back. Uh, it's a pleasure to have uh, yet another book in this Oxford series on digital politics before we start to talk about your new book and the larger themes of that series um maybe you could just give us a little update about where you are now are you still fully employed at the university of north carolina give us give us your your update
0: yeah so um i i am and and i'm actually newly promoted to associate professor Um,
1: congratulations
0: thank you it's it's quite an honor uh to to be an associate professor at the oldest public university in the united states uh, I have a adjunct appointment over in the Department of Communication Studies at UNC, which is a wonderful collection of scholars, and I'm an affiliate fellow of the Information Society Project at Yale Law School as well.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful. You came on, I guess, about two years ago with your previous book, and your appearance on the podcast did not derail your tenure and promotion, <laughs> so that's and, in, and at least an endorsement of this not being a bad idea. And, and it, it was such a pleasure to talk to you then, and, and so nice to see the way that this larger research agenda is is continuing. Um, for that reason, um, you know, your, your book is, is about has so many really interesting details. But I wanted to start with some of the bigger concepts. Uh, would you, for just the sort of sake of contrast? Talk about a couple of the the big ideas here, and maybe some ideas that have changed over time. Which is to define for us uh, the difference between micro targeting and voter modeling. These are two ideas that are that seem so important to the ongoing changes in how campaigns use technology, and and I think have be- for probably many that don't study this kind of mean the same thing. They seem to mean something very different. Tell us about those two different ideas.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great way to start. Um, so one of the big differences between micro targeting and, um, you know, more predictive modeling or predictive analytics, there's a number of different terms that practitioners themselves use, but it's this basic move away from targeting groups of people, which was the model under micro targeting, um, where at some point during an election or during points in an election, you would go and you would survey um, and you would find certain groups of voters that might be um, responsive to your appeals, that might be supporting your candidate, that might be open to persuasion. Um, and these are the things that you heard a lot about like during the 2004 election. So um, one of the things that um, got I think got a lot of uh, coverage during that election was like um, you know, latte drinking liberals in ex urban areas, those sorts of big demographic groups. Um, and then what campaigns would do is after they define groups that would be, um, advantageous for them, uh, they would design media campaigns, um, to, uh, attempt to reach them and appeal to them. Uh, so they would figure out who these groups are, what their media habits would be, what sorts of messages might they be responsive to, um, and then they would buy television advertising and design their political canvassing operations sort of around turning them out. Um, that started to shift around 2008, particularly on the Democratic side of the aisle, uh, when uh, really beginning with the Obama campaign in 2008, but but also um, refined at the Democratic Party during that time and extended, uh, during the midterm cycle in 2010 and, uh, during the presidential reelect campaign in 2012 was a move towards more individualized, uh, scoring and targeting of, of voters. So, um, what Obama's folks and the DNC folks sort of figured out was, one of the things that you could do is run continual surveys of, of the electorate, um, find out lots of, uh, different things about different people, uh, and then really layer it onto the voter files that both parties maintain in a way that you would score people's probabilities, um, individual probabilities, uh, to do certain things or to have certain attitudes. And this really falls into some big buckets, right? Uh, it was likelihood of being an Obama supporter, uh, likelihood of being open to persuasion, uh, likelihood of being open to particular types of appeals, uh, and likelihood to turn out on election day. So um, in sort of the big broad sense, we see a movement from more group-based targeting and group-based modeling to more individual-level predictive modeling uh, that seeks to score individual voters on the basis of the characteristics they share uh, with other known voters who who they learn things about through things like surveys.
1: Now, in your title, you refer to prototype politics. That is your title. What is this concept of a prototype, and, and how does it relate to the technology of campaigning.
0: Yeah. So um, one of the things that I think really came through loud and clear in the course of researching this book was the degree to which all aspects of contemporary campaigning is newly technology intensive. Um, And what I mean by that is that there is a technological component uh, to everything that campaigns do. Um, and whether that entails things like data architectures or voter databases, whether it entails things like iPads and uh, iPhones, whether that entails servers, um, and computers, uh, whether that entails things like social media platforms uh, like Facebook and, and Twitter uh, or cable set top boxes. All of contemporary campaigning now has a new technological dimension. One of the examples that I really like to give um, actually came from the 2012 campaign uh, where Obama, uh, the reelection team, had a media analytics group. And one of the things that Carol Davidson, who's the head of that media analytics group, uh, and her team sort of figured out was they could get set-top box data, um, and what I mean by set-top box is the the boxes that cable companies provide, um, to figure out ways to more efficiently buy television advertising to reach groups of people who are being targeted by the Obama campaign. Um so even in an area where we tend to sort of think of um uh as being relatively well institutionalized like uh, campaign television advertisements. Um, that is a newly technological dimension in terms of being premised on new sets of data, data architectures that make that data actionable, um, algorithms that are uh, designed by engineers to more efficiently uh, get television advertisements in front of voters uh, of interest at particular types of day uh, of the day. Um, and I think part of the broad history that the book tells and part of the reasons why campaigning is newly technology uh, technologically intensive um, is simply that it is a lot harder to reach people and get your message in front of people than it was 50 years ago or even 10 years ago. The number of platforms has exploded, um, the number of ways that people consume media uh, has changed uh, and drastically expanded. The ways that people consume media has changed. So more things like dual screening, for instance. Um, so what campaigns need to do is figure out not only how to build new technologies, but also figure out how do we use data effectively and analytics effectively to make sure that we're getting our messages out in front of the electorate, um, that we're capturing their attention and ultimately persuading them to vote uh, for our candidate uh, on election day um, or, you know, with early voting months in advance. Um, so with this sort of basic idea that technology is new, that, that campaigning is newly technology intensive, one of the things that I really set out to discover in this book is how is it that campaigns have responded to this new technology intensive era of campaigning What sorts of skills and expertise does it require? Um, And how have political parties and other entities kept pace with the um, rapid technological changes that have affected all sectors of society? But even more than that, how do they innovate uh, in this new technologically advanced landscape for a competitive electoral advantage? Um, and one of the things that I discovered in the course of my research for this book was um, campaigns often learn from uh, what seemed to be successful during election cycles or prototypes, as I put it. So on the Democratic side of the aisle, the Howard Dean campaign in 2004 was a really important prototype campaign in that it disclosed an entirely new way of campaigning that was internet intensive, that was premised on digital engagement, that was premised on small-dollar online fundraising. Um, and what happened was is that after John Kerry lost in 2004, actors across the Democratic Party network were seeking out a new way to do things. And one of the things that they saw in the Dean campaign was an entirely new prototype for a way that a campaign could be run in a new way. Um, I think in many respects, the Obama 2012 campaign was a a prototype, uh, particularly for Republicans uh, in the years after that election cycle. So uh, the GOP Growth and Opportunity Project report spoke extensively about the technological sophistication of the Obama 2012 campaign, the ways in which they used technology, digital media, data and analytics to turn out voters, to identify their supporters, to get them to the polls, all led to the Republican Party in the years after 2012 sort of adopting key elements of the uh, Obama re-election bid. So the idea of prototypes was meant to capture ways in which technological innovation and adoption happens within party networks in this new technology-intensive era of campaigning that we're
1: in. Now, as you just allude to, some of this change relates to the role of the party in modern politics, and you write in the book that the national parties are now the voter file. What do you mean by this? Um, Have parties given up other functions, or is Voter data simply much more important now, and the party's role in this has just become uh, all that more significant. Tell us about this idea of parties becoming the voter file.
0: Yeah, so so parties serve many roles uh, in politics, um, which which I'm sure your listeners uh, know. I mean, they help uh, connect candidates to consultants, for example. They vet candidates. They decide generally the outcome of primaries. Um, uh, they, you know, provide important institutional resources, they manage voter files, they provide candidate training. Um, all those functions are still with us uh, and they haven't gone away. And I think parties as institutions uh, remain central to the American political process. Um, what I was trying to capture there was something that emerged really inductively in the course of of uh, researching this book and, and talking to um, uh, scores of campaigners and practitioners, both within parties and campaigns, but it's the idea that voter files in particular have grown far more central uh, to contemporary campaigning than they were 10 or even 20 years ago. And to go back to my earlier example, voter files now underpin all aspects of contemporary campaigning. Um, so they've taken on a, a new role. Um, I just gave the example before of the Obama team in 2012 um, more finely targeting um, cable advertisements on the basis of using set-top box data provided by uh, certain uh, third parties that make uh, cable viewership habits uh, readily available. Um, that's just one example. I mean, we can sort of go down the line and sort of look at every aspect of contemporary campaigning. So, um um, Elector uh, canvassing, for example, uh, field campaigning or political on, in Republican parlance, right? The idea that you're going to try to figure out on the basis of data who your supporters are going to be um, at a moment in time, um, who might be supporting the other candidate, are people open to persuasion, how likely are they to vote, all comes down to the basic data that's provided in the voter file. Um, the voter file are these massive files, upwards of of 700 data points on every member of the electorate uh, within the Democratic Party, that contain all sorts of things, uh, including public information, uh, which campaigns obtain from uh, secretaries of state. So this would be um, uh, party registration. It would be turnout history. And then as Etan Hirsch has written in a, a wonderful book called Hacking the Electorate, Um, It also includes in some states things like um, race and and ethnicity data. Um, But that varies. But that forms the core of the voter file. And then what parties do around that is they supplement that data with things like commercial records um that they purchase from um outside third parties uh, which do things like credit histories and and uh, magazine subscription lists and the like uh and then also uh, very importantly is the voter file that both parties maintain that's a history of their Canvas contacts so every time somebody comes to your door and living in North Carolina I get to witness this firsthand Uh, But every time a canvasser for, let's say, a presidential campaign comes to your door and asks you a set of questions about who you're supporting during an election um, and what sorts of issues matter to you, well, that data gets entered back into the voter file of the political party that that canvasser is from. And that then becomes a record of a campaign contact and information about you that later campaigns will then draw on as well. Um, what I think I mean to capture when when you quoted that sentence was simply the idea that the voter file is increasingly important to all aspects of contemporary campaigning. And it's often the what Zach Moffat, uh, the digital director for the Romney campaign in 2012 campaign, called the North Star. Um, it is the thing towards which all aspects of the campaign is oriented towards. It helps set electoral strategy. It helps um, you figure out which voters do you need to reach. It helps you test messaging. Um, It helps you figure out which doors to knock on. It helps set your uh, get out the vote plan on election day. Um, it helps you determine which media markets you're going to be in. It helps you figure out how you're going to target digital ads on Facebook um, so and and both parties really provide that core piece of infrastructure for campaigning, um, and it really sort of sets the pace for everything that a campaign
1: does. Now you call uh, the this this entity called Vertica, the unsung hero of the Obama campaign in two thousand twelve. So, for those who've never heard of Vertica, what is it, and why was it so important?
0: Yeah, so so it's it's um, basically an analytics platform uh, provided by uh, Hewlett Packard that the Obama um, re-election team and the Democratic Party used uh, to really support its database infrastructure. Um, and one of the things that was important about Vertica is that it really enabled the campaign. Um, to merge multiple forms of data in multiple different formats uh, together um, in a way that would make that data actionable uh, for the Obama campaign and the Democratic Party in 2012. So one of the one of the stories of contemporary voter data is that we are uh, or campaigners are really swimming in a sea of data. Um, it comes from multiple different sources. It's often very loosely integrated. Um, the data you get back from things like social media analytics platforms looks different than the voter file, looks different than your financial reporting database, um, looks different than the data that you're getting coming in from the field. Uh, what Vertica enabled the Obama team to do was help fit that data together. Um, that was coming from multiple sources and then supported the ability of staffers to do analytics around that data and really sort of figure out what data was actionable in terms of electoral strategy and how were you doing your modeling and which voters did you uh, need to reach out to on election day? It was really a core piece of the infrastructure that tied together all the different data that was coming into the campaign and made it actionable uh, for staffers at both the party and the re-election bid.
1: Now, we've heard a lot about the the Obama campaign and some of it in your uh, previous writing in 2012, but let's talk a little bit about the, the other party, um, which had been um, functioning and innovative and in, at a very high level in 2004, uh, but over time seems to have sort of changed their approach to technology. How would you characterize the Romney campaign's approach to digital technology? Who was in charge first? And and what was their general approach? Uh, were they as successful as as you might expect? Um, tell us about that campaign.
0: Motivations um, for this book was really coming after the 2012 election cycle, um, when there was a whole host of reporting, at least from the outside, uh, about how mismatched the Mitt Romney and the Barack Obama campaigns were. Um, in technology, digital media, data and analytics, all these things that I've been talking about thus far, um, in terms of their approach during the 2012 cycle and the seeming capacities um, that each campaign had um, appeared to be quite different, at least in terms of the reporting that was coming out around that cycle. Um, And one of the things that really encouraged me to sort of write a book was trying to figure out how do I explain that? How do I explain the fact that in 2012, at least on the surface, there seemed to be these big differences uh, between the Barack Obama and the Mitt Romney campaigns when it came to technology and and digital media? Um, And what was even more perplexing is that, you know, I was pretty well aware of the political science literature on campaigns, which had generally sort of assumed that, you know, given equal resources, um, you know, both campaigns on both sides of the aisle would generally arrive at the same strategy um, because everyone sort of sees the world in the same way and, and there's sort of an objectively good strategy that you would pursue in electoral terms. Um, so everyone would similarly make very, um, very comparable investments and run very similar campaigns. Um, but one of the things that was really striking is that, well, here I was in 2012, um, thinking back to my previous book, where you know I sort of charted the ways in which the Democrats had really built on uh, their failures in two thousand and four and and looked to the the Bush campaign in four as a model um, and invested significantly new resources in in tech and in digital um, and I would have expected uh, given sort of reigning theories that you know the Republicans would have done the same so that their nominee would have been pretty much on par with Obama. Uh, come 2012, and yet that seemingly wasn't the case. Um, so that really kicked off starting to research this book. And, and four years later, um, what it does is sort of chart the history of sort of how the Republican Party um, sort of evolved um, or failed to from really that Bush campaign in 04 to the Romney bid in, in, in 2012. And I think there's a couple key aspects of that history that speaks to sort of your question. So first of all, one of the central claims um, of the book is that you can't look in isolation at any one electoral cycle to understand um, the development and the origin of a campaign and the strategies that it adopts. Um, so one of the things that I found time and again is that a lot of the differences between the Democratic and the Republican parties, um, when it comes to things like technology, digital media, data and analytics, those are built up over time and over the course of many election cycles. Um, and one of the things that I do in the book is actually just look at like patterns of hiring of presidential campaign staffers during the 2000, 2004 presidential election, uh, the 2008 presidential election in the 2012 cycle. And I find vast disparities between Republicans and Democrats just in terms of staffing, um, hiring staffers in these areas on presidential campaigns. The other thing that I found with respect to differences between the Republican and Democratic parties is that um, not only were Democrats hiring more in the areas of technology, digital media, data, and analytics, uh, but they were also drawing a lot more talent from the technology industry. Um, so this is you know high tech sector companies. Um, these are you know commercial data firms. Um, these are folks who have a specialized set of skills or are coming out of an industry that's technology intensive. And what are they do- and what they're doing is carrying these skills um and carrying this expertise and this technological know-how into politics. Um, and the Democrats seem to just be a lot better at attracting um, this new um these new talents uh and these new staffers into politics and helping them run their campaigns. And then the third big difference that I found when looking at the data, along with my graduate students, um, was just Democrats also had much higher rates of new organizational founding after their presidential election. So not only were they hiring more staffers, those staffers were then going on to launch new and uh, new new firms and new organizations that were taking the innovations of their presidential campaigns and then carrying them down ballot and bringing them across election cycles in ways that future Democratic campaigns uh, could use. So on the Democratic side, I think in a lot of ways, this explains their technologically sort of um, forward campaigns. Um, And one of the things that happens by virtue of that is I think over time, the Democratic Party just came to value technology, digital media, data, and analytics in ways that the Republican Party did not. And just to give you a few examples of this, on Democratic campaigns, um, Obama in particular, but more generally across the board, um, there was more hiring done in tech, digital media, data, and analytics. Um, Those staffers had more autonomy to apply their trade. Uh, They were given more resources. Um, There was a a much more robust infrastructure like Obama's email list and small dollar donor list, um, as well as the the technological and digital media savvy to know how to effectively raise money. Uh, through email, how to do things like optimization testing and A-B testing. Um, All of these were a set of skills and infrastructure that the Democrats had built up within their party network really after the 2004 cycle and carried forward to 2012 and now into 2016. On the Republican side of the aisle, there was a bit of a different story after 2004. Um, One of the arguments that I make in in my book is that um, the Bush team was so dominant in 2004 um, in really every aspect of contemporary campaigning over the Democrats and John Kerry that there was little incentive for them to sort of rethink the way that they were doing things. Um, the Bush team in 04 just had much better Internet operations than John Kerry at the time uh, they had things like online virtual precinct captain programs that were integrated with field. They had a much more sophisticated national voter database, much better field operations and turnout operations. They were running experimental tests to figure out how to best turn people out. Um, so they were so far ahead. And then after 04, there was little incentive to, to sort of build on that and continue innovating. Meanwhile, um, you know, heading into the 2008 election, Republicans faced a very strong set of electoral headwinds. Um, you know, they had a very unpopular incumbent. Um, the party wasn't well off financially. It was coming off of pretty devastating midterm elections in, in 2006. Um, and John McCain's bid for the presidency in 2008 was really a shoestring operation and a come from behind victory. Um, what that meant is that, John McCain just didn't have anywhere near the number of resources to invest in things like technological infrastructure and hire staffers uh, that the Obama campaign did. Um, And that was the context coming out of 2008. Um, And the thing is that even though John McCain lost in 2008 and a number of practitioners in the Republican Party were sort of concerned that Obama seemed to run this very, technology-intensive campaign and very social media-intensive campaign in 2008, um, a lot of Republicans expected John McCain to lose, um, as did many political scientists, which I think is, a, a, is an important part of the story, is that you know all the, the great tech in the world wouldn't have given John McCain a victory in 2008 with a deeply unpopular incumbent, the President's Party, sitting in the White House. Um, you know, so so but I think what happened was, is that a lot of Republicans didn't really feel the urgency to adopt similar innovations to what the the Obama campaign had done in 2008. Um, and then work that happened within the Republican Party in the years after 2008, in turn, um, really got lost under Michael Steele's chairmanship, uh, where even the investments that were made ultimately had to be sacrificed, given really mounting debts and the fact that Michael Steele had a very sort of uh, embattled chairmanship, to say the least. Um, and I think this was the context that the Romney campaign started to take shape in 2012. And what that meant in a couple of really important ways is that even by the time uh, the primary started, um, the Romney campaign was starting off significantly behind the Obama campaign when it came to basic party infrastructure. So. Uh, The voter data uh, that the Romney team was inheriting compared to with what the Obama team was inheriting from the Democratic Party just simply wasn't nearly as robust and didn't have the advantage of being enriched by the millions of voter contacts that Obama engaged in in 2008. Uh, The email list that the Romney team inherited um, from the party in 2012 uh, was simply less developed um, and he also encountered a much less robust pool of small dollar donors that take cycles to really develop and cultivate. Um, uh, Romney also faced a very contested primary uh in 2012. And that meant ultimately fewer resources. Uh it meant less time to engage in technological development t- uh, um, uh, within the campaign. Um, while Obama was enjoying what I call in the book a technical advantage of incumbency, having a year to run unopposed meant lots of time to uh, raise money and to spend them on large scale infrastructural technological projects. Um, and then it also meant, uh, referring to the history that you mentioned before, um, that within the Romney campaign itself, there was a much less autonomous role for digital. Um, so, um, you know, the... Whereas on the Obama campaign, uh, his digital staffers, for instance, um, very much had a seat at the senior staffer table um, and had autonomy to do things like produce content for social media. I think most of the Romney practitioners who were on the campaign would sort of agree that they faced a lot more scrutiny and a lot more vetting for the content that they were putting out online. Um, And the campaign itself had a very communications um, heavy approach that was really oriented around broadcast advertising, less so this field approach and this digital first approach that the Obama 2012 campaign had adopted. And again, I think all of this is not simply the product of the whims of any one electoral cycle or any one campaign manager, but was really sort of rooted in the fact that the two parties as networks had evolved quite differently in the years after 2004.
1: Yeah, Dan, I I learned so much in in everything that you've you've written. I I enjoyed the previous book, and there's uh, just dozens and dozens of things to learn from this uh, new book, which is called Prototype Politics, Technology-Intensive Campaigning and the Data of Democracy, published this year by Oxford University Press. Dan, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Thank you, Heath. I appreciate it.